0: welcome to City Breaks Bath, episode four, Taking the Waters. I thought we really must have an episode devoted to that one phenomenon which is at the heart of everything in Bath, the reason for its foundation in the first place, the thing that's drawn people to it over the centuries, and still today a major factor in the attraction of people coming to visit the city, and that is the fact that Bath is the site of the only hot water spring in the whole of the UK. Every day, Over a million litres of hot mineral water rise up out of the earth in three springs in the heart of Bath. And in this episode, I'd like to chart the history a little bit of reactions to it, the periods when it was everything, the periods when it wasn't so much used. But more importantly and more interestingly, I think, I'd like to share with you a few experiences of people over the centuries who came to Bath to take the waters. So, where did it all begin? The story purporting to tell the very beginning of it is a legend dating from the 9th century BC. So, in the nature of legends, particularly ones from so long ago, I think we have to take it with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But it's a story that's nice to tell anyway. It all centres round one King Bladud. You may know that there are statues of him in Bath, there's one in the King's Bath. And there's a second one, I believe, in Parade Gardens. So an indication that he somehow was very much connected with the founding of the city. Okay, so Bladwood wasn't a king originally. He was a prince, a prince of ancient Britain. And while hanging about, waiting to become king, he went to Athens. And unfortunately, when he came home, he had leprosy. So he was promptly banished from his father's court because really that wasn't very nice to have around okay so he went off and became a swineherd and he was working near bath and one day he met some pigs who also had leprosy please don't write in i told you it was a legend i don't actually know whether pigs can get leprosy or not anyway they were afflicted with a terrible skin disease and being a bit cleverer than the humans or perhaps a bit more instinctive or maybe they just hit lucky they went rolling around in mud somewhere just outside Bath, and slowly but surely their skin disease disappeared. Blood noticed this, wondered whether the mud had something to do with it, and thought he'd try it out himself. So he too rolled around in the mud, and hey presto, it worked. He was cured. So back to court, eventually he became king, and when he did, he's said to have set up his court in Bath, so fond was he of this lovely place that had contributed to his cure, and he set about encouraging other people to use the springs. So keen was he that anyone else afflicted should have the benefit of the cure that he had enjoyed. And that is the story of how the healing properties of the water around the city were discovered. The story is told in various versions. I think the one that people usually use was written by Geoffrey of Monmouth in his book in the 1130s. His story Regum Britanniae, the history of the kings of Britain. But perhaps we should note that the 1130s were nearly 2,000 years after the 9th century BC, and so if the story is not accurate in every detail, I think we have to live with that. So I'd like to just go through a few key dates in the history of the development of the city as a spa town. I'm very aware that I'm leaving plenty out, but I think really if you have too much detail, you just get lost in it, don't you? So Just really want to make the point that the waters and the spa element of Bath have been important at many points over the century. So, for example, 1189. So, only half a century or so after Geoffrey of Monmouth, somebody else wrote a book called Latin title, I'm afraid, as books tend to have in those days De laudibus divinae sapientiae, which I'm reliably informed means of divine wisdom. And in this book was a section praising the healing properties of the waters in Bath. Again, all written in Latin, but helpfully translated in the 19th century, as follows. The Baths of Virgil scarce would I prefer to those far-famed of Bath, for haply there the frail grow vigorous, the weaklings strong, and there the aged man once more grows young. So an enticing description about the ailments the waters of Bath are reputed to cure. If you're frail, if you're weak, come to Bath. And actually, if you're elderly, come to Bath and see if that doesn't make you feel a bit younger. There are some writings later on in the episode, actually, where other people voiced exactly those thoughts, with a bit more explanation. So, let's give it the benefit of the doubt. We know that in the 14th century, the monks in the abbey in Bath supervised the baths and the use of the water there for the benefit of the poor and the sick. And we know this partly because there have been some lively accounts left behind of when the monks had to take action because of lewd behaviour, as it was mysteriously referred to in the account which I read, by which I think was meant people throwing rotten fruits at the poor sick people trying to relax in the waters. It's even said in one account that people used to bombard these poor people with rats doesn't say actually whether they were alive or dead but either way it makes you quite glad you don't live in the middle ages does it not in the sixteenth century we know that the baths began to be a little more exploited more people were travelling to bath to make use of them i think i read something by john leyland who visited in fifteen forty in a previous episode he was the one who noted that people using the baths tended to have leprosy or the pox or scabs And he was obviously a bit sceptical because he wrote that the water, quote, reeketh like a seething pot. And also that it had, quote, a sulphurous and somewhat unpleasant savour. There are one or two interesting descriptions to come of people trying to sum up what the taste is like. So, for the moment, let's just stick with John Leyland and his unpleasant savour. But he did admit that he thought it might do some good. In fact, he wrote, quote, many be halp by this bath from scabbies and aches. So very much implying he had seen people with skin infections make some progress, indeed heard tell that people with aches and pains, perhaps arthritis, would be the word we would use today, also found that they too got some relief from the waters. Another sixteenth century visitor, one William Turner, wrote a book called A Book of the Bath of Bath and he listed a number of ailments for which he thought he'd seen evidence that the baths helped in some way, and they included gout, palsy and sciatica. But his writing wasn't entirely positive, because he was obviously quite well travelled. He'd been to Germany and to Italy, and he'd seen spas there, and he thought that really, this scruffy one in Bath was nowhere in comparison. No changing rooms, he sniffed, and I don't think they drain the water regularly. And some of his suggestions for improvement do give you quite a nice picture of what the bath must have been like at the time. His first suggestion was that there should be separate bathing for women. Okay, fair enough. But secondly, he thought that there really ought to be separate bathing for quote, those with highly infectious diseases. Which, while being a good idea, does make you slightly nervous about what was happening before someone suggested this. And the third suggestion of his that I saw. Creates quite an amusing picture in the mind because he said not only should women bathe separately, he really thought that horses should do the same. So as you go round the baths, please do try to imagine people in there bathing away alongside their horses. Things took a bit of an upturn. The idea of coming to Bath to take the waters gained quite a lot of traction in 1574 because that was the year when Queen Elizabeth I came to the city to visit. As mentioned in the previous episode, she was very interested in the idea of restoring the Abbey to its former glory after the damage which had been inflicted on it in the dissolution of the monasteries. I think that was perhaps the main reason for her visit. But there's no doubt that she was very interested in the waters and their healing properties. The fact that it was known that she was coming prompted a great clean-up so that she would be impressed, and that by itself had the effect of making other people feel keener to use them. And then I think that was further encouraged when she came and took a personal interest. There were more royal visitors in the following century. Charles II came with his wife, Catherine of Braganza, with the stated aim of hoping to put right the problem that was dogging them both, namely her failure to conceive a child. Sadly, their visit didn't seem to have any effect, but when the second king, James II, arrived with his wife, Mary of Modena, for the same reason, it was noted that, sure enough, a number of months after their visit, she did in fact give birth to a son. So all of this got people talking about Bath and kept the city uppermost in people's minds. There's no dispute that it was the eighteenth century that was the heyday of the notion of taking the waters in Bath, the Jane Austen era particularly, when people came for the season to drink the waters, to bathe in them, to consult the ever-growing number of medics who, stationed themselves in the town, knowing that invalids plenty were coming to visit. And all of that aspect ran alongside the social life, the balls, the walks, the card parties. More of that in a future episode. That was definitely the high point, but in the following century, the 19th, things started to wane. By the 1840s, other places had become the place to go for your health and your cures. People noticed that, of course, if you went to Brighton, Then you could add bathing in the sea to the list of treatments. The royals at that period were very fond of that and so gradually places like Brighton and Weymouth took over and the practice of an annual cure in Bath began to fall into decline. However, later on in the 19th century something happened which turned its fortunes again and that was the discovery of the Roman remains. People got very excited about that. There was an excavation programme They began to find the Roman complex. Workmen began to dig Roman artefacts out of the mud. And so suddenly everybody was talking about Bath again, which of course turned their attention to the spa waters as well. The effect of this is nicely explained in the book Stories of Bath by Diana White. Quote, This interest prompted a spate of hotel building. In 1870, the Grand Pump Room Hotel had wonderful bathing facilities complete with dressing rooms. Running off a long corridor were six baths, three reclining baths, two dry douche baths, a vapour bath, an enema apparatus, and, to crown it all, an 80-foot swimming pool. Every imaginable luxury was provided for the guests, including a cooling room for the days when the ladies bathed, and a smoking room for the gentlemen when it was their turn. The new Queen's baths, with their pulverising room, for the water, not the patient's, were so magnificent with their mineral water fountain surrounded by potted palms that they were said to rival the spa at Aix-les-Bains. It's always a good thing when any facility in England is favourably compared with something in France. Immediately gives it an element of sophistication and class. Diana White does go on to explain some rather scary-sounding treatments. She talks, for example, about patients being strapped into chairs which would then be immersed in the water. being needled by jets of hot water. In the 20th century again various phases. After World War I it's known that war casualties were sent to Bath as were polio victims for treatment. After the founding of the NHS it was decided to use some NHS money for the Hot Springs Treatment Centre in Bath in the 1950s and that prompted a steady flow of people coming to the city for the sake of their health. Although in the 1970s that funding was lost So then there was the possibility of yet another decline. But bringing things bang up to date, at the turn of the century, the Millennium Fund contributed to a bath spa project which led to the building of the facility that's there today, the Thermae Bath Spa, where locals and visitors alike can now enjoy the hot spring water's 21st century style. Here's a little extract from their guidebook. Quote, Thermi Bath Spa is a remarkable combination of old and new, where historic spa buildings blend with the contemporary design of the new royal bath. You can now bathe in Britain's only naturally warm, mineral-rich waters, as the Celts and the Romans did over 2,000 years ago. OK, so that's how things have developed then over the 11,000 years since Bladud first noticed the healing properties. And now I'd like to go back to some of those periods of time and share with you the experience of various people who actually braved it and took the waters so we get a better impression of what it was actually like. Celia Fiennes visited in 1687. You may have heard of her. She was an intrepid female traveller who crisscrossed England, I think by herself, and all of this in the 17th century. Anyway, she came to Bath. and This is how she described what the people... Using the baths were wearing Quote, the ladies goes into the bath with garments made of a fine yellow canvas which is stiff and made large with great sleeves, like a parson's gown. The gentlemen have drawers and waistcoats of the same sort of canvas. She describes the difference between the various baths, the cross bath, the queen's bath the king's bath, and comments on the smell of the water so here's another little extract. These baths all have galleries round and the pump is in one of these galleries at the king's bath which ye company drinks of. It is very hot and tastes like the water that boils eggs. Has such a smell but ye nearer the pump you drink it, ye hotter and less offensive and more spirituous. So I think to summarise she didn't think much of the smell but she thought perhaps it was worth getting right up close and drinking it because it might do you some good. There are some descriptions from nearly a century later written by Tobias Smollett in his novel Humphrey Clinker. So, okay, it is fiction, but it really does read as if Mr. Smollett had been and had a good look at the baths. And I think it would be fair to describe his reaction as dubious. And he was dubious on various counts. He didn't, for example, think much of the idea of actually bathing in the waters, writing, quote, suppose the matter of those ulcers floating on the water, comes in contact with my skin when the pores are all open. I would ask you, what must be the consequence? Good heaven, the very thought makes my blood run cold. And if you think that, oh well, he wasn't going to dip in, but he was going to drink it, I'm afraid that's not the case either. He thought that too might be dangerous. He's discussed this, or at least the character in the book claims to have discussed this with a doctor. How is this pump and cistern actually made? And having found all the details, he says, It is very far from being clear with me that the patients in the pump room don't swallow the scourings of the bathers. And if there's not quite enough yuck factor there for you just yet, then he goes on with a bit more detail. In that case, what a delicate beverage is every day quaffed by the drinkers, medicated with the sweat and dirt and dandruff and the abominable discharges of various kinds from 20 diseased bodies parboiling in the kettle below. He was clearly intrigued because although he certainly wasn't going to drink that water, he does tell us that he went to the spring on Abbey Green and tried the water there. But whatever Tobias Smollett thought, the writer of The Bath Guide, only 30 or so years later, in 1800, was very clear that what you should do is fast in the morning between 6 and 10, and then go along to the pump run and drink the waters. It describes people doing exactly this. It makes clear what sort of quantity was deemed to be good for you. Quote, The quantity generally drunk in a day is from one pint to three, though some drink two quarts. Few constitutions require more. So the more experiences I read, the more I became clear that actually the jury was out. Some people thought it was all effective. Other people thought it certainly wasn't. So let's just hear from a couple more writers, one on each side of the argument. Lord Chesterfield, for example, was writing in 1757 about a trip that he had made to Bath in the hope of curing his deafness. Quote, I have tried these waters in every possible way. Seeking a cure, I have bathed my head, pumped it, introduced the steam, and sometimes drops of water into my ears, but all in vain. Diana White in her book Stories of Bath summarises some of the reasons why there may have been something in the idea that the water did you good. As she points out, water generally was not the cleanest, drinking it was risky anyway, and there was every chance that the water from the spring would in fact be better for you. She points out too that people who came to Bath to take the cure often were encouraged to give up alcohol, so that may have had an effect as well. Then there was the idea that if you were swimming in hot water, that might be good if you were arthritic or had aching limbs. It is true that there are minerals in the thermal water, so if you were using that on your skin and bathing outside, there was certainly a possibility that that would help. So generally it was agreed that drinking the water possibly might be reasonably good for you, that there might be some medical benefits to be had from bathing in it, but that it tasted really rather strange. And this was a point made in Pickwick Papers, the Dickens novel, when his characters come to Bath for several chapters worth of story. So here's a little extract from that, in which the taste of the water is discussed. Quote, "'Have you drank the waters, Mr Weller?' inquired his companion as they walked towards the high street. "'Once,' replied Sam. "'What did you think of em, sir?' "'I thought they was particularly unpleasant,' replied Sam." Ah, said Mr John Smoker, you disliked the Killiebeach taste, perhaps. I don't know much about that here, said Sam. I thought they were very strong flavour of warm flat irons. And then finally, a piece written in 1939 called Bath, Past and Present, author H.M. Bateman. On his way to the pump room, he overheard a lady saying, I'm afraid it will be very objectionable which the person described as the uniformed attendant outside reassured her. Not at all, madam. It is a little warm and has a slight taste, that is all. And then Mr Bateman goes on to muse that OK, it might do you some good. It probably won't do you too much harm. And actually, it's very nice to be in Bath for a little while, for all the other reasons, the social life, the rest. And this, he sums up as follows. What could be more pleasant and soothing the aged or delicate than to enter this impeccable pump-room, receive the daily quota of water from the hands of a purple-clad damsel, and to sip it, sitting meanwhile upon a Sheraton settee, perusing the current illustrated journals, or perhaps dealing with one's correspondence at one of the writing-tables so thoughtfully provided. All of this combined meant that Bath was always a city to which invalids and the unwell and the elderly would come, in the hope of cures and, as various authors I read have pointed out, that meant that they were closely followed by what I've seen described as all sorts of doctors and quacks. These rather vulnerable people would be in situ, you could offer them cures, charge them for the privilege, business would be good. As early as 1687, Celia Fiennes noted the presence of chairs to carry people who couldn't walk. Quote, There are chairs, as in London to carry ye better sort of people in visits, or if sick or infirm. That must, I think, be where the expression a bath chair comes from. And so it was that in 1738 the foundation stone was laid of the Royal Mineral Waters Hospital. Various well-off people in Bath had been fundraising for 20 years or so to build it, and they wanted it to be a charity or a charitable foundation, the aim being to provide access to treatment in the thermal water of Bath for the sick and the poor from Britain and Ireland. It was in fact the very first hospital anywhere in Britain which welcomed people on the basis of need rather than ability to pay. Some of the great and the good of Bath, for example Beau Nash, were behind the fundraising, I think he made donations himself, and eventually the building was complete and a doctor was engaged, Dr William Oliver. He suffered from gout himself, was happy to say that it was his own, quote, happy experience that bath's warm water could relieve this illness, and, as he put it, even cure it with correct supervision. Dr Oliver has a little place in history, because it's known that he, in addition to encouraging his patients to take the waters, prescribed the bath bun as part of their diet, until he noticed that this was making them put on weight. And so he devised a healthier alternative a drier biscuit. Fewer calories, much better for you, and of course it became known as the Bath Oliver Biscuit. You can still buy it today in Bath, certainly, and also in well-heeled establishments like some of the big department stores in London. Very nice with cheese, I believe. Anyway, this hospital specialised in paralysis, rheumatism, skin afflictions, so actually all the same illnesses that even blooded in the ninth century B.C., Had been talking about the hospital eventually became known as the National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases, and I imagine a lot of good work was done there. Although Bath never quite lost its reputation for attracting other less qualified doctors and not quite doctors and so called medical experts in general who could see that a profit could be made. Diana White in Stories of Bath writes about this phenomenon as pertaining to the eighteenth century. Quote, the medical profession, most of it expensive and some of it distinctly dubious, rubbed its hands in glee as the sick and the vulnerable, guineas jingling in their pockets, poured into bath, seeking health and strength and Just to round things off, I'd like to make a brief mention of the thermi Bath Spa, which is the twenty-first century answer to how to make the most of the waters of Bath. It's a huge new building whose architecture makes use of the old Georgian styles and very contemporary new stone and glass. And the whole thing is somewhere where you can bathe in the mineral waters, just as, as its guidebook puts it, the Celts and the Romans did over 2,000 years ago, and where also you can partake of a whole range of spa treatments. Inside, there's the Minerva bath, named, of course, after the Roman goddess Minerva, goddess of health and wisdom. and there thermal waters, a massage jet, a whirlpool, a lazy river, a lovely place to just relax and swim, and benefit from the waters. There's also a wellness suite with all kinds of treatments, an infrared room, a quote, celestial relaxation room, an ice chamber, aroma steam rooms. All really quite linked to those descriptions in a previous episode of the Romans with their aromas and their massage oils. And Best of all, in my humble opinion, an open-air rooftop pool full of naturally warm mineral water where you can make use of facilities like air seats and bubble jets and where, best of all, you can swim up and down looking over the spectacular views of Bath and the surrounding hills, musing perhaps that you are just one person in the 11,000 years of people coming to Bath and benefiting from the waters. I definitely recommend And so to round off for today with just a little pointer to next week's episode, I'm going to call that Bath's Georgian Architecture, make a mention of some of the people who designed those lovely squares and crescents, talk about what it is that makes them so special, describe one or two places where you can actually get inside a Georgian residence which has been kept as it was, and really get a sense of what life was like inside them. We'll certainly be visiting Queen Square and the Royal Circus and the Royal Crescent. Places which really define what it is that makes Bath such an elegant city today. Looking forward to your company then hopefully next week and for the moment. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.